in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Look at your first five to seven years, and you're going to pay to learn. Someone is paying money to learn. You just paid this college a lot of money to teach you. Now you're about to go get paid to learn with someone else who actually does it. And that is really cool. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Grant Farrell, a CPA in the Dallas area whose career took him into the valuation specialty arena. This is definitely going to be an interesting podcast for you if you have any interest in the valuation space or ultimately how to get into that field. You'll hear it early on in the podcast, but Grant basically got into accounting as a career because his life was changing at the time, and he wanted a dependable career path to follow, or a funnel, as he puts it, and accounting was that vehicle for him. As luck would have it, though, he had the opportunity to get involved in the transaction services area with a big four firm, and that, along with basically his natural interest, took him into the valuation and litigation support areas. I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but suffice it to say that Grant not only shares some of his insights into that specialty specifically, but I think he has a lot of good, solid, general career advice that he shares here as well. I think you'll get tremendous value out of this episode. If you do find this episode has been valuable to you, please visit us online at whereaccountantsgo.com to subscribe to the podcast, or you can do so through your favorite podcast app as well, of course. Also, we have links to all the prevalent certifications there as well. Once again, that site is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Grant Farrell. Welcome to the podcast, Grant. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Mark. No problem. Well, I also want to welcome all the listeners to this interview as well. This one's going to be a little unique, as I guess many of them are. I was doing some research, and I came across Grant Farrell because he recently had been recognized by the State CPA Society as a, quote, rising star. And as I looked deeper into his background, I was intrigued by a few things, namely an economics degree, because we don't see those too often among CPAs, or at least I haven't personally. But then also, Grant has a background in valuation and appraisal. And I know those areas are slightly more common, but nonetheless, they're definitely interesting fields. And we haven't had too many guests really go into depth on those areas. So I felt like the audience would get a whole lot of benefit out of this interview. Grant, I certainly want to get into all that, but I know there's much more to the story that I don't know, and therefore our audience as well. I always like to start at the beginning so we get an idea of what the full picture looks like. How did you initially? decide to pursue accounting as a possible career in the first place? How about an available job (laughs) is probably the most honest answer to dive more deeply into it. So there's, I always had the public perception that CPAs were highly respected and just hearing the way people talk about CPAs just kind of told me that they were admired, that it was a reputable 
profession just from growing up. I definitely got that from my family. So my both my grandfather and my father were entrepreneurs. And so they didn't or couldn't really run a business without somebody who had a good grasp of the numbers. And so they had a high expectation and just uh, admiration for the profession in general. And then I've also spent a ton of time just playing a lot of golf. So I've heard some people say with a similar background to mine that it was a misspent youth where there was a lot of us, especially growing up in North Texas, that were pursuing a professional golf path. And whenever we were out there practicing and playing, we would always run into CPAs, business owners, attorneys, just other professional service people. So you ran into them that way and got a unique perception of, of CPAs and accountants from that end as well. So just the reputation in general in the marketplace, the reputation from the way my family viewed it and my own just knowledge of running into them just on the golf course. And then getting into college, just seeing a lot of my friends, you know, major in accounting, watching that path. And as I turn now the funnel of just big four firms and how they funnel all the accounting majors from the time they're sophomores in college all the way through the process until their first years in auditor tax. So I was definitely aware of it and just from the positive reputation all around. Okay. You mentioned an available job in the beginning. Was part of it sort of the security that you knew there was something waiting there? <laughs> Most definitely. So that's kind of got a funny story to it, which is, you know, going back to where I was just really focused on being a professional golfer. And so I went to college to play golf, and already there's a tension between, well, are you going to be in college to pursue a career in a profession, or are you going to be in college to pursue athletics? And that tension really comes across as time, just time management. Where are you going to spend it? It's either going to be, for me, it was either going to be on the course practicing and pursuing my dream, or was it going to be in the classroom and just be more realistic and preparing for graduation and ultimately trying to go get a job just in the real world. And for many years, for the first two and a half years, I was on a professional golf track, and that's what I wanted to, to do. And, and so I made those evaluations about what courses I took, you know, which courses came easy for me, which courses would require more time, and would I have that time. And you mentioned my economics degree. Well, economics just was something that, came easy for me. It was a skill set that uh, didn't take a whole lot of time for me. So that decision process just kind of matched up with what I wanted to do, which was play golf, and I could still get a degree in economics and still have enough time to pursue my dream of being a professional golfer. Get into economics, and I liked it. You know, it's just way different than accounting. You're using a different part of your brain. There's numbers to it. But it's more big-level thinking. It's more behavioral thinking. It's, hey, if this happens, what is the cause going to be on people? And how is that going to change the behavior? And what I really liked about economics was when you got into the test, a lot of the times there were five, six, seven, eight, nine right answers, which is also something that's not true in accounting. There, there's one right answer most of the time. And But for economics, it was as long as you had a good logical, rational explanation for why something was going to happen, more than likely you were going to pass that question and pass the test and then get a degree. Interesting. Now, I noticed you, or it looks like you 
pursued your graduate courses in accounting immediately after getting your economics degree. So were you coming up towards graduating with the economics degree and deciding that maybe you wanted to do something different at that point? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I kind of led into that story of two and a half years. Uh, I was focused on becoming a professional golfer, but then I had an injury. And that injury, you know, that, that process of just kind of working through that injury, the rehab, and then the timeline of college and when that graduation date was coming, it, it became very apparent to me that I was not going to become a professional golfer, at least within the, the timeline that I thought I needed to. So it was, and it also helped that it, I also had my eyes open that I wasn't that good anyways. <laughs> and there were a lot of good players out there. And, and so it was a humbling experience. So the last half of my college career was just a lot of soul searching, a lot of identity searching. You know, it was a pretty interesting time in my life because, you know, for many people, just trying to make so many big decisions in college that are going to set you up for a certain path and you're freaked out that you're going to make the wrong decision and you're going to go down the wrong path. And, you know, I was no different. I was definitely, you know, having these thoughts in my head. And so while I enjoyed economics, I was looking at the job market and realizing there wasn't really a job that interested me that was available for an economics major. And and with golf not having a future and with me looking at my degree and the opportunity that that provided, I just didn't like the option. And so that's where having friends who were already in the accounting department and, and they were telling me, hey, this is the opportunity we're looking at. And it really just seemed real appealing because, you know, that funnel that I mentioned, it's like, man, the, the next two, three years of your life are already kind of planned out and it's going to get you that first job and it's going to look really good on your resume because it's with a big four firm or a, a large mid-level firm and it, it just gives you more runway to really figure out what you want to do with your professional career. And, and so just talking through with more people about, you know what, that sounds more appealing to me because I felt like my life had just got flipped upside down. You know, my, my focus was on one thing and, and that thing got taken away from me. So, you know, what do you do with that? And so that option of switching gears and studying accounting, because I knew there was some opportunity after I got all the required studies under my belt. And so I was considering doing that at the new where I graduated an economics degree or at another school. And that other school ended up being UTD. And so I ultimately chose UTD to do that and get all the accounting courses I needed in a relatively short period of time so that I had enough hours to sit for the CPA. And at the time, that's all the big four really required was your hireable as a first year if you're able to sit for the CPA. And so that was my goal. That's where I switched tracks and just dove heavy into accounting just because I saw the opportunity that was there. Okay. What was your first accounting job out of college? First accounting job was with KPMG. I was in audit. Okay. Any particular team or specialty? So they put me on the financial services team. So that was okay. insurance and banks and a lot of non-traditional businesses that I didn't expect. So I was expecting going in there to do, you know, manufacturing or distribution, you know, companies like that. And I ended up getting a challenge right off the bat. So doing financial services was a challenge. It's just things are a little bit more complex when you're dealing with, oh, when you're dealing with money as an asset and selling 
of, of money at different rates or trying to risk risk businesses and then trying to properly account for the liabilities that you just took on. And it's a little bit different than just, hey, we sell this widget and this widget costs X amount and we sell it for 2X and the rest are expenses. So, so yeah, it was financial services. Learned a ton. I was swimming in the deep water very early. Okay. Did that launch your career into the valuation space eventually? I mean, is that how you got started down that path or take us forward from there? Yeah, eventually it did. So I spent two years in audit and then moved over to a subgroup called transaction services. And transaction services was basically doing, as I term it, it was audit on steroids. You were helping companies buy or make acquisitions of other companies and you were performing audit steps and due diligence to try to make, give the buyer comfort about what they were buying. And I was sitting on a project one day, and we were beating up EBITDA. So that typically what you do in those situations is, you know, transactions are structured based on some sort of EBITDA times a multiple. You know, in that group, we were hired to go beat up EBITDA. So give me a good EBITDA number to which I'm going to apply a multiple to. Like, okay, no problem. We can come in there. We we make 15 or 20 adjustments, and it takes EBITDA from, say, a million bucks down to $650,000 or, you know, whatever it is. And then at the end of the day, you're going to throw a four or five or eight multiple on it to come up with the value of the business. So I was looking at this project and looking at all the work that we just did and saw that we had beaten up EBITDA and done a good job. And then they took that number and they threw an eight, multiplied it by eight, and that's what they were going to pay. And I just asked the question. I was like, well, where did the eight come from? And the senior on the job was saying, well, it came from the buyer. That's just the number they want to use. I was like, well, why isn't it six? Or why isn't it 10 or two? You know, what makes it eight? And he didn't know. But but that was valuation. And that was my first real exposure to it. At that point, I didn't really know much about the valuation world. But I just saw that it was eight times more important than what I was doing. And so just through that luck, just started doing more research on it and then met some people who worked in the industry. And through those conversations, an opportunity arose to join a firm called Erickson Partners. And it was a three-man shop at the time. And they offered me the job and I took it because I was just, you know what? It's, hey, audit's great. I learned a ton. And transaction services is great. I learned a ton. But I think I'm more drawn toward understanding why we're multiplying it by eight and then if we're multiplying it by two or three. And so that ultimately was how I got into valuation, which is curiosity. Okay. So what was Erickson Partners exactly, and what was your role? So at that time, my role was, was the low man on the totem pole. We were a group of four strong, and it was made up of a couple ex-big four valuation experts. One of them had led the national valuation group for his particular big four firm and then hit mandatory retirement, but he still had energy and he and his son wanted to go start and open up their own firm. And, and they had a particular niche and that niche was in oil and gas and it was in uh, professional sports. And so when you wonder how a three-man firm can really compete with, with the big fours or a regional-sized accounting firm that also had valuation practices, you had to have a niche. You had to be the expert in a certain industry that people all over the world would want to talk to that guy. And so I just got real lucky and ended up at that firm with that expert. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, you were fourth in command at that point. Yeah. 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 That's, how I, that's how I tell everyone is I was number four. So 
And as long as they don't ask the follow-up of, well, how many people were there, then we're good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, this was, what, a little over 10 years ago, or was it longer that you started with Erickson? Yeah, so I started about a year before the financial crisis. So this was May of 2007 that I joined okay. Erickson. Okay, so I was just trying to get an idea of about how long you've been in the valuation space. Okay. How long were you with Erickson Partners? So I was with Erickson Partners for 11 to 12 years, I guess it's right. We went through our own acquisition during that time. So while the name changed in the door, I was still sitting at the same desk with the same chair and and doing the same thing. So I, I consider it one and the same even when the name changed on the door. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, how did your role or duties, how did things evolve over that 11 to 12 years? Because you know, obviously you got better in what you did, and I'm sure the role changed over time. Yeah, so I mean, it was pretty much exactly what you'd hope would happen when you're going from a large firm to a small firm. You're hoping to grow, and sure. we were very blessed, and we grew. At the point in time that we were acquired, you know, we were four to start out, and we were seven, so almost doubled ourselves in that time, which is a lot for a firm of of that size. So my role and responsibilities changed over that time, just, you know, learning how to execute a project from start to finish, learning how to win projects, and then execute them from start to finish, and then learning how to market, and learning how to network, and, you know, building up soft skills that you need in order to just really make a professional service career grow and survive. When you're at a smaller firm, you're wearing a lot more hats, and I love that. You know, I love being able to understand and be an expert at how to do valuation, but then I also like the opportunity of being able to manage people sooner than many others get to. And, you know, I even like just doing the stuff that needed to be done, just like, you know what, we ran out of coffee. You need to go pick that up on your way into the office, you know. So it's everything is not decentralized into highest and best use yet. You're still hey, we got to get this done. Let's figure out how to do it. We're all a team here. You know, when you're that small, it's a family. So it's not a corporate tone of, you know, making sure that everyone is doing their highest and best use just isn't there. And it's just, for me, I really enjoyed that. It just felt like a lot warmer environment. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious. What skills or characteristics, you know, abilities, do you feel are key to being successful in the valuation space and versus a typical accounting position? Is there anything that you found that you needed to brush up on or, you know, areas you needed to grow in that sort of didn't come with the accounting degree? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot. So one thing that may come as a disappointment to the listeners who are maybe in college, but the learning never stops. So even now, I'm still trying to learn new things to make myself better, more competitive in the marketplace. Valuation is unique because you really need three different skill sets as far as technical skills in order to be successful. I majored in one of them, and that's economics. I went back to school to get the other part, accounting, and then the third part was finance. And you really had to blend all of them together in order to be effective at the valuation. And the finance was the one I didn't have and until I got into valuation and just really just, again, more deep dives. You know, the CFA does a great job of providing some incredible study material for their exam. 
and it's a great place for someone like me who, man, I had accounting, I had economics, but I hadn't, really didn't have any finance background, was to go just pick some of those books up at half-price books and just start working through them, just start working the problems. And so I could understand and talk the, the terms to my clients and to even, you know, my coworkers. So I really had to spend a lot of time with, with finance once I actually got in the valuation space. And looking back on it now, it's absolutely well worth it. And while I feel comfortable with economics and finance and accounting, you know, I'm still learning that, you know what, there's more stuff about taxes that I need to bring in and incorporate in order to serve my clients better. So it just never ends as far as just learning. And as long as you aren't scared by that, maybe disappointed by that, but as long as you're not scared by that, then you're going to do well as long as you just keep learning. Okay. You hit on this earlier, and actually in my preparation for the interview, this occurred to me. If you're working with professional sports teams or decision makers at professional sports teams and auto dealerships, those personalities are a little different than the accounting profession. <laughs> you mentioned soft skills earlier. I mean, what have you done in your career to sort of brush up your soft skills? Or were you always sort of you know, that kind of person in the first place? That What have you done to grow in that area? Yeah. So, no, I was not <laughs> the guy who could talk to a tree or knew everyone at the party, and I'm still not that guy. So a lot of this is just knowing your personality, knowing what works and what you can excel at knowing your personality. But I had to do a lot more learning. Soft skills is really the part of the professional service that I don't think a lot of people are trained to do. They really have to take it on themselves to seek it out and know. That's the hard part. you got to know what you're looking for in order to learn it. If you don't have someone that will kind of take you, it's like, hey, here's how you bridge the gap between just being an excellent technical professional and moving up to, you know, the partner level, you know, being able to generate business. You know, that part really depends on having a great mentor, someone who will tell you here's exactly the skills that you need and you need to figure out how to go get those skills. So for me, it was just doing reading. One of the best books I ever read was one of Dale Carnegie's books. It was How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it just teaches just how to relate to people and really be a servant first and foremost. And i got to be careful with this topic because I can kind of communicate some of the goals or what you're trying to work on with these skills. And it'll come across as you're not being sincere. Like you're really just trying to work people or just giving them lip service. And we all know those people who you don't trust what they're saying because they're just kind of shallow. Those are shallow compliments or something like that. And I think we all kind of can, can tell when people are doing that. So it's, there's a fine line to just learning how to be likable and agreeable and encouraging the people and do it sincerely versus those that aren't doing it sincerely. And that just takes time. It takes time and practice and a lot of knowing yourself of why am I really doing this? Why am I really engaging in this conversation? Is this to really help the other person or am I just in it to help myself? And so for me, it's just asking myself those questions and it's much easier for me to figure out what's driving me here and if my motives aren't the right motives, then that's not a good conversation to engage with and so my motives are correct. And so I really am wanting to help this particular person. 
So I would just say it's just a lot of trial and error of reading material that will help you just relate to people better. And then if you have a heart of a servant, then I think you're really going to do well because you're all about other people at that point. And when people know that they're for you, they trust you. And just everything is just a lot easier to have a relationship. And you do this with your friends. You know, you want to serve and help your friends. And then that's really what it's about. It's about, you know, trying to be a friend with everyone. And you're not going to be a friend with everyone. But that's the soft skill to me is just to be relatable and likable to other people and looking to serve them. There you go. Now, that is such a classic book. It really should be required reading, even for accounting majors. You know, somehow, somewhere, that should, we should be forced to read that one. That really has got so much wisdom. That is a good book. Thank you for mentioning that. That's a tremendous book. Now, you went out and started your own business here recently, right? Tell us about yeah, that. I did. So, Trinite is a boutique business valuation firm again. So, I, I kind of went from a, a larger firm. After we got acquired again back down to a real small firm, it's just me. And so, you know, we solve value problems and, and help our clients execute strategic decisions with confidence. And ultimately, that's what a valuation professional does. Is they're just they're providing confidence to a particular situation where there's a lot of insecurity. So this plays out with there's a federal tax need for this. In the litigation space, there's a need for this. And then with transactions, you know, helping partners buy out of the partners or acquiring other companies. So most of our clients are business owners, family offices, investors, attorneys, and other CPAs who are just looking for that additional confidence and how to approach a valuation issue. Wonderful. Okay. I did want to ask you, as long as you've been in this industry, I mean, if you know, junior or senior in college is listening to this or, or maybe, you know, a professional the first couple of years in their career and they would like to go in the direction of valuation, you know, head their career in that direction. What advice would you have for them? The advice that I would have is don't expect to go in right out of college into a valuation shop. That's very difficult to do and just the numbers aren't there. There's just not too many opportunities to go in right from school. So probably just set your expectations a little bit, a little bit different and go where the opportunities are. So where I see the opportunities are in tax and audit. Firms are always looking for people to come in and help them with taxes and perform audits. And you learn a ton doing that. And that's really, you know, most of my friends that are starting out or they're still in college. And that's what I encourage them. Look at your first five to seven years and you're getting paid to learn. Someone is paying you money to learn. You just paid this college a lot of money to teach you. Now you're about to go get paid to learn with someone else who actually does it. And that is really cool if you put it in that context versus, oh, I just signed up to go work and bill 2,000 hours a year. I'm working 50, 60 hours a week. It's really hard. And it's like, yeah, but you are learning so much. And then after you've got some base level learning of just, you know, how business operates, you know, you've got some more of the lingo down, you know, all of that schoolwork that was just theory is now getting more real. You can then start to ask for other opportunities in the firm. Do we have evaluation practice? If so, can I talk to one of the partners about what it's all about? Are there opportunities there? That's the way most of the firms that I know operate is they do internal transfers. 
So rather than go hire a first year out of school and not know how he works and not know really the quality of the professional that they're getting, they would, for those specialty groups like valuation, they would much rather take a, you know, a highly rated audit, a highly rated tax professional and just bring them over into a different group. It's lower risk on them and they don't have to train, do a lot of the training that goes on you know, for the first and second year guys. So I think realistically, that's the way most of it happens. Not to say that you won't find other opportunities with other valuation-specific shops, but even then, I see that they like to make experienced hires. And that's what happens when you've got an industry that a lot of people are interested in and a lot of people are looking to, to learn more about, kind of like I did. And I hate to say it, but I just, I got lucky. Right place, right time, not the right person. And they had an opportunity. But realistically, just kind of, you know, be expected to work on a two to three year goal of, of trying to start with a firm doing something maybe, you know, you don't want to do forever, but, but you're willing to put in your time and learn in order to get over the evaluation group later. Hmm. I love that mind shift. You're being paid to learn. That's, you're right. If you just flip that switch mentally, it gives you a whole new context. It's very smart. Very smart. Well, we've been on the phone about 35 minutes, I think, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. And we still got, you know, the final questions to get through. So one question before we get to that, I'm curious to hear what your feedback would be on this. If you could go back in time, you know, given what you know now and give your younger self just one piece of advice, what do you think that might be? Create more options. Hmm. And that's, again, I was lucky to have a great mentor who was the one who gave me that advice. If you can create options, then it's exactly how it sounds. You have more options. You're not stuck doing in a particular situation that may not be as advantageous for you. And there's just a lot of freedom and flexibility that comes with creating options for yourself. And so that, you know, from the story I already told, you know, I really didn't create any options for myself when I went to school focused on golf. And when that didn't work out, the pain that I went through trying to figure out what my next step was when my only option failed me. So there's you know, there's wisdom in diversifying. And there's wisdom in diversifying and giving yourself options in the work world as well. So if you can look for ways to create more options for yourself or not burden, you know, the opposite of that is burdening yourself with responsibilities. And really that's more along the lines of like personal responsibilities. If I'm not, if you're approached with an opportunity to take another job and it's something you really want to do, however, the pay is a little bit less and I'm burdened by some financial obligations that hinder me from taking this opportunity, then I haven't created any options for myself. I've created restrictions. And so challenge yourself to create options and align your life in such a way that you're creating options for yourself and not burdens and restrictions. Beautiful. There's so many benefits to living below your means. I hadn't thought about that side of it. That's hmm, very smart, very smart. Well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions. It gives us a lot of you know comparison ability across episodes and things like that. So I want to get to those. The first one is usually the easiest for guests. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Passing the CTA exam. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that I did not have a traditional route to that. I, I told you before that I listened to a lot of your podcasts and many of the guests on there 
were able to knock out the CPA exam within a year or two of graduating college. For me, it took seven. And I failed that test many times before I finally passed it. And when I did, it was a month before my first son was born. And so that was a huge relief because once that first kid comes along, their <laughs> studying was not happening for at least 18 to 24 months. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to take a second for a little commercial here. In case anyone's listening to this episode and it's your first one and you're pursuing the CPA exam, go a couple episodes back because as the time we're recording this, we're about to release an episode with five newly certified CPAs and they talk about how they passed and just sort of they pass on wisdom, you know, and they've all passed within the last two years. So that was really a special episode. So thank you for hitting on that. You gave me an opportunity to do a little public service announcement. So <laughs> that's good. Well, second question, tell us about a mistake that you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's where the gold is. But the bigger, the better. We like the big mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I had a, this is twofold. So was, this is the first client that I had brought in myself. So I was Super excited to be on this project because I had generated the lead, I had identified the problem, and sold the solution. And so I was in the process of executing that job. And actually, the project went so well that we got another project after that. And so I was out at the client site, having lunch, talking about this project. And one of the topics that this project involved was going to be on personal expenses and just help me just rein in some of these operating expenses that are running through my business and some of my personal ones as well. And so me feeling confident, I identified one line item that was for entertainment purposes, and it really didn't line up with my personal stewardship viewpoint on where money should be going. And so I made the suggestion, the very specific suggestion of cutting that expense for that entertainment purpose. My client looked at me, just kind of gave a knowing nod. He was better at being likable than I was at that point in time. Uh, <laughs> he had better soft skills than I did. And he nodded his head and, and walked out the room. And I continued on with the work and with the meeting with his controller and, and so on. Two days later, I'm expecting to get more data to complete the project. And the phone call comes in and and they decided not to go through with the project. And while I don't know specifically, it was because of that comment, but it was the last thing that I did say to that particular client. So I can't help but think letting my personal beliefs on how entertainment expenses should be utilized for business definitely, I think, had an impact of me losing that job. So while what I learned from that was while the information is important to relay to him that perhaps, hey, we could do this better. It was being more careful in how I delivered that information so that it wasn't an attack. It wasn't an attack on my view versus his view. And because I believe I came across a little bit too strong. So that went from a high of this is my first client that I've ever brought in by myself to a low to this is the first client that has fired me. Sort of a feeling of self-righteousness, is that? Oh, you hit the nail on the head. Okay. Yes. Well, that's a good lesson to learn. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of us need to hear that. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, our own backgrounds color our judgment, and it's important to remember that. Thank you. Thank you. It's very transparent. Thank you. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. And you may have mentioned this already, but what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Yeah, I would go back to create options is the best piece of advice that I've ever received. That just seemed to open up my mind to just a different way of thinking when I was very much just on the track of, hey, this is what you do. You're an associate and you work for two years and you work hard to get promoted to senior associate and you do that and you do a good job so that you can get promoted to manager and so on and so forth. And so I was in that linear thinking and not thinking about creating options because I really only thought of one option. It was this career on this track and it was partner of bust. And having that experience already with my failed golf career, it really rang home how I was not creating options for myself. I was not diversifying my risk very well. And that is the best piece of advice that I've ever received. Well, that is good advice to send this on because our podcast, that's what it's all about, is showing people all the different options that there are with the accounting background that we all have. So thank you very much. Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited the website, you can find the show notes for this. Of course, we're going to put a link to the book that was mentioned as well. And once again, that site is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. You'll find the show notes for all our episodes there, whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the audience or words of wisdom? Well, I would say to the younger crowd, just enjoy the journey. It's a fun one. Yes, so true, so true. Well, Grant, thank you again for joining us. And to the audience, thank you for joining us as well. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.